Thanks for joining us. I'm Tom Jelton of NPR. I'm sitting in for Diane Rehm. She's off today. World leaders are congratulating Donald Trump for his victory in the presidential election, but there's also a lot of anxiety about what it could mean. In Venezuela, talks are set to resume between the government of Francisco Maduro and the opposition over the nation's political and economic crises, and China flexes its muscle over Hong Kong. Joining me for this week's top international stories on the Friday News Roundup, we have Moises Naim of El País, Missy Ryan of the Washington Post, and David Sanger of the New York Times. Good day to all of you, and thanks for coming in. Thanks, thanks for having us. Thank you. So our phone lines are open. Our number is 1-800-433-8850. We invite your questions and comments. You can, you can of course, also email us, drshow at wamu.org. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. Or you can find us on our webpage, drshow.org. So, David Sanger, fair to say there's a lot of uncertainty around the world today about what this is going to mean going forward. What are some of the questions that, that people are raising that they want answered? Oh, did something happen this week? <laughs> uh, yeah, there's there's uncertainty in the world, and there's uncertainty um, here in Washington. I guess if I had to characterize it on the national security and foreign policy side, I would say that the big mystery is what does Donald Trump mean by America first? A phrase he brought up in an interview uh, with a colleague of mine uh, and me in back in March and used repeatedly after. And how does he solve the mystery of when we intervene around the world? The two are related. So on America First, there's some easy parts of this. Uh, in trade, for example, which I'm sure we'll come back to in a little bit, he said various trade deals are not in America's interest, no longer in American interest. That's a debate the country actually needs to have and did have to some degree. It's one of the real, one of the few issues that actually did get uh, hashed out some in this uh, debate. It's less easy to figure out when you think about the value of America keeping its forces around the world. He has said that he would pull back from NATO. He has said he would pull back from our forces in the Pacific unless our allies pay the price of protection. And it's a question of how you identify what our national interests are in having a forward force. Let's take those two issues one at a time. First of all, America first. Uh, Missy Ryan, it's not only America first, uh, it seems to me, because Donald Trump applauded the decision by the British people to leave the European Union. Right. He seems to be saying every country should look first after its own interests. What does that indicate about the future of multilateralism? Sure. I think that, you know, the the central question that people here in Washington are asking themselves and, and foreign capitals around the world is how much of what... Donald Trump has said on the campaign trail, does he actually mean? And there's some indication speaking to advisors this week that what we may see in Donald Trump as a president could be significantly different than what we saw on the campaign trail. We just don't know yet. Mm -hmm. But in terms of whether or not America first is something that will actually translate into a palpable policy, I think, yeah, we can expect to see changes in our trade policy, potentially changes to the allocation of forces overseas. But I personally wouldn't expect any uh, withdrawal from NATO. Perhaps we've ha we'll see an increase in NATO contributions from member states in Europe. But, you know, I think that we're just going to have to see over the next couple of months whether or not the advisors will be able to um, – will want to 
come up with a sort of policy, a more consistent policy than than what he suggested on the campaign trail. Mercedes, one of your books is The End of Power from Boardrooms to Battlefields. Uh, are we seeing what are we seeing here now in terms of the future of power relations in the world? I mean, are we seeing each country sort of retreating into its own position? And what would that imply? The central message of my book is that in the 21st century, power has become easier to acquire, but much harder to use, and therefore more, is more ephemeral, easier to lose. And we have seen that with Trump. Trump is another uh, of, of the many candidates, of the many new powers that come out of nowhere. They're improbable and expected, surprising, and then uh, they manage to dislodge, uh, to dislodge this, the existing traditional mega players. And uh, I think he's in for a surprise. He's going to discover that uh, the White House uh, uh, does not provide as much power as he thinks, that he will have face constraints that he did not imagine, mm. uh, both domestically and internationally, that things that he said that he will do, we, he will not be able to do. I think he's in for a huge Guantanamo-like uh, um, trauma. Remember that one of the main commitments of President Obama was to close Guantanamo on mm -hmm. day one, and that was a strong commitment. Eight years ago. Eight <laughs> years ago, and he tried, and he tried. and He's he still going to try to close it by the last day, you know? <laughs> and so th and that is a very small example so that's the template here compared <laughs> to others, but that is a very interesting illustrative example of how many of the things that the presidents are passionately committed to get don't, right. don't, don't get to do it. Well, David, let's break down the international reaction a little bit. Uh, where we first, the first, as far as I know, the first foreign leader to congratulate Donald Trump was Vladimir Putin. Mm -hmm. There's a whole story there. Um, then uh, much more guarded a reaction from Angela Merkel in Germany and the Prime Minister of Japan, Abe. Uh, also, China doesn't seem to, hasn't, the leaders of China, Xi Jinping, haven't seemed to figure out yet exactly what they should say. But the, but the forces around Assad seemed fairly positive <laughs> on it as well. So, I mean, I think that tells you a lot, you know, in those early events. So, um, for Putin, I mean, I think if you're the Russians, you have to worry a little bit about Donald Trump's unpredictability. I mean, the oddity, the, the, the way he stood out, not only from the Democrats, but from his own party, was with this argument that it's time for more than a reset, but actually finding common ground with the Russians to the point that the former deputy director of the CIA, Mike Morrell, who was on the Clinton side, wrote in an op-ed that uh, Mr. Trump was an unwitting agent mm -hmm. uh, of the Russians. That's pretty strong words mm -hmm. for somebody who is now who just Who knows become, a thing or two about agents. Uh, knows a thing or two about agents, but also, you know, is now have, has said that about somebody who was about to become president of the United States. So, uh, you know, that's, that's going to be the interesting and I think in some ways the most interesting test. Here's the oddity in the Russia case. Look at Syria. On the one hand... President-elect Trump's uh, wording about Russia would make you think that he wants to find common ground about dealing with Syria with the Russians. On the other hand, he has denounced the Iranian presence in Syria, mm -hmm. and the Iranians are working with the Russians. Right. So this is one of the first circles uh, that he's going to have to go figure out how he, how he deals with the intersection. Um as for the Germans and the Japanese on this, they're concerned about 
the whole concept that the United States will, in fact, pull back. Now, mm-hmm. this gets to what Missy was describing about how little we know. And the question, I think, implicit in Missy's point here is, and correct me if I'm if, if I'm wrong on this, Missy, is, is this a core belief of Donald Trump or is this a negotiating position in order to go make these countries pay more? Which it would not be. He would not be the first president that has come into office with that goal. That certainly not. And and you know the goal itself is shared by people as uh, mainstream as Barack Obama and Bob Gates, the mm-hmm. former Defense Secretary, all of whom said countries need to pay, particularly NATO countries, need to pay more than their share. The Japanese pay a lot, uh, and uh, it may work. Missy, let's turn our attention a little bit to, David mentioned Syria and uh, the complexity of the situation in Syria and the questions about what Donald Trump intends to do there. Um, And he has portrayed everything in the Middle East, basically, it seems to me, is coming down to the fight against ISIS. And how have the most radical Islamists that who have pronounced themselves in this election, how have they reacted so far, and what can we foresee on that front? Yeah, from, from what we've seen, uh, there's been a positive, uh, euphoric response from some of the extremists who are out there on the Internet. Basically, the idea is that this would be good for the jihadist cause because Trump has articulated the conflict, not just in Syria against the Islamic State, um, but against militants, uh, Islamist militants the world over as a conflict between the West and Islam. And that really plays into the way that they see it as well. And so the idea is that, you know, people are saying, well, finally, Donald Trump is telling the truth, whereas Barack Obama pretended that it wasn't this sort of age-old culture war Donald Trump is telling like it is. And I think that the other idea is that Trump, by doing, if he does some of the things that he's promised to do, such as attacking the families of suspected terrorists and bombing the heck uh, out of uh, out of ISIS, bombing the blank, <laughs> exactly, bombing the blank out of ISIS, that that would actually galvanize antagonism in the Muslim world against uh, against the the West, and that's good for them. And I, but I just uh, want to go back to something that David just said, which is that, you know, some of regarding Syria and and many other issues, there are these sort of internal inconsistencies in the positions that Trump has taken. And I think that as we try to map out how this plays for different countries and our our relationship with the world, we just need to figure out how um, those uh, uh, internal conflicts will be resolved if they are. Missy Ryan is the Pentagon reporter at the Washington Post. My other guests this morning are David Sanger. He's the national security correspondent at the New York Times. And his book is Confront and Conceal, Obama's Secret Wars and Surprising Use of American Power. And finally, Moises Naim, a distinguished fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and chief international columnist at El País, the newspaper in Madrid. And as he mentioned, he's the author of The End of Power and his newer book, uh, uh, churches to states. Uh, oh no, that's all the same. That's all the same. Boy, he has a long title. Why being in charge isn't what it used to be. Well, we're go- we're going to find out about that, aren't we? Okay, we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. I'm Tom Jelton. This is the Diane Reem Show. DC is daily. DC is daily. DC is daily. It's news, culture, and curiosities. From the district, Tacoma Park, Alexandria, Friendship Heights, Hyattsville, Falls Church, Northeast Washington, DC. 
in your inbox every weekday afternoon. DCS Daily. Sign up at dcs.com slash newsletter. dcs.com slash newsletter. Hello again. I'm Tom Jelton from NPR. I'm sitting in for Diane Reem today. This is the international hour of the Friday News Roundup, the hour where we go over all the international news. And my distinguished guests are David Sanger, national security correspondent at The New York Times, Missy Ryan, Pentagon reporter at The Washington Post, and Moises Naim, an author and columnist uh, for El País uh, in Madrid. And Moises, just before the we're doing the break, you, you um, were telling me what how German Chancellor Angela Merkel uh, responded to this election. Uh, uh, a pretty courageous leader who's faced a lot of uh, populist anger in her own country. And faces an election uh, soon. She wrote a letter uh, congratulating Donald Trump for the election, and in that letter she said uh, this, Germany and America are bound by common values, democracy, freedom, as well as respect for the rule of law and the dignity of each and every person, regardless of their origin, skin color, creed, gender, sexual orientation, or political views. <laughs> Not a lot so of nuance is, there. She's so making this her is a point. letter of, reco- of congratulations that also sends a strong message a strong about... Message. Uh, Indeed. So, Moises, no foreign policy goal was mentioned more often in Donald Trump's speeches than his promise to build a wall to keep out illegal immigrants, uh, undocumented immigrants from Mexico. Uh, what is he going to do uh, with that? Is he going to be able to do that? Is he, how is he going to pay for it? What are, all the, what are the answers to those questions? We don't know. It's, uh, it's the answer to all of these questions. As, as my colleagues here have said, uh, many interpret this to be opening salvos, opening bids in negotiating. This is a negotiating tactic. But this one has acquired a symbolic value mm-hmm. that it will be very hard for him to say that he's not going to, to do it. We're talking about 2,000 miles. We're talking about more than $5 billion. Uh, we're talking about him saying that the Mexicans will pay for it, and you know he may either through taxing remittances or uh, raising tariffs, which uh, generally will weaken the, uh, the the Mexican economy and paradoxically will create even more uh, incentives for Mexicans to come here. So the weaker the Mexican economy, the more Mexicans will want to come, and they will find a way to come. There is no, no evidence in the world that these kinds of uh, barriers really stop uh, immigrants that are determined to come. Europe does not have a wall. Europe has an ocean. And still, uh, people are managing to get to Europe. So, you know. What does this mean about the future of a Trump administration's relations with Latin America as a region? I mean, on the one hand, his, his, his vigorous anti-immigrant rhetoric, the idea of building a wall, his rejection of trade deals. Uh, I mean, those, I would think that those kind of all go together in terms of shaping Latin America's perce- the perception of Donald Trump from Latin America. Latin Americans are, like the rest of the world, uh, baffled and perplexed uh, and uncertain about what it all means. He has not talked much about Latin America except to say, uh, of course, a lot about Mexico. Uh, He has said uh, um, that the the normalization of uh, the the relationship between the the United States and and Cuba is a bad idea and that he's going to reverse it. Uh, And he has mentioned something about Venezuela and Nicolas Maduro, the president. He doesn't like him. Uh, and he wants to help. But he has been very vague, and, and, and Latin America did not figure importantly in these uh, debates or in the election. 
Missy Ryan. I think it's important to mention that the United States is a major trade partner, not just for Mexico, but for countries across Latin America, including Peru and Chile. And just the very uncertainty in what the policies are going to be, the immigration policies, the trade policies, the economic policies, um, is, I think, very worrying. David, the other big issue that he talked about a lot was the Iran nuclear deal, which he called, what, the worst deal in the history of U.S. I mean, I forget all the hyperbole that's associated with, with it. But what is going to happen? Is Because at one point it seemed like he was willing to sort of see if Iran would abide by it. Even though he said it was a bad deal, it sounded for a while there that he was going to let Iran sort of prove itself in a sense, right? You know, I think this is going to be one of the most interesting tests he has not said that he would rip it up, and I, I pressed him on this in two separate occasions. Um, but he has said uh, that he uh, thinks provisions of it have to change, and he has supported um, sanctions for events that are happening outside the deal. Iran's continuing support of terrorism, uh, Iran's activities in Syria, all the other destabilizing things that they're doing. The problem with this that he's soon about to discover is that if you think the deal is unpopular in parts of the Republican Party, you should go check in Iran because it's really unpopular there for completely different reasons. It's unpopular because the Iranians believe that they are not getting the benefits from the sanctions relief. So if he reopens elements of the deal and says to the Iranians, we need to renegotiate, they're going to come back and say, you know, you're right, and we've got a list as well. And the question that leaves you with is, if they don't like the final uh, deal that's put together, do they go back to reprocessing uh, plutonium and enriching uranium? So in other words, does the reimposition of sanctions open the way for the erosion of the deal? Well, in fact, the Iranians have been pushing the limits on this deal in that regard, right? Well, not really. They, they've had one or two things that they have done, including the production of heavy water, which by itself is not going to make you a weapon. It's a, it's a way on. But remember, in January of this year, they shipped 98% of their nuclear fuel out of the country. So they do not have the stuff right now to make a single nuclear weapon. And I think it's probably going to I think even Trump's advisors will conclude you don't want to get them to the position where they've got the stuff to build a weapon. Missy Ryan, another big question is Donald Trump's relations with the military leadership in this country. He said some pretty provocative things that the generals have been reduced to rubble. He said at one point, as far as Syria is concerned, that he knew more than the generals. You saw uh, within the national security community, Republicans and Democrat leaders alike uh, feeling very uneasy about the prospect of a Trump presidency. What are you hearing around the Pentagon uh, about the, about their view of a Trump presidency? Well, this is something I've obviously been looking at um, since Wednesday and before. And in some ways, the, the military as a traditionally conservative, politically conservative organization, when you're talking about the rank and file, maybe, you know, disposed to like Trump. I think it's different when you come to the leadership um, because some of the policies that he suggested he would pursue upend these fundamental agreements and principles that have um, underpinned American security policy for decades. I think that when it comes down to it, though, the brass, the, the senior leadership is going to get in line with whatever President Trump 
orders unless it's something that is believed to break the law. And I think there um, about his promise to resume the use of torture in detainee interrogations Mm -hmm. and potentially, as I mentioned earlier, um, intentionally striking civilians. Okay, Moises, and another big issue. I mean, there's so many big issues to consider. We just have to kind of race through them. Uh, The future of international trade. I mean, I saw a quote this morning from Senator Schumer who said basically no one is going to push the Trans-Pacific Partnership deal anymore. That one appears to be dead. Uh, Trump promises to renegotiate NAFTA. Have we seen the end of this whole recent era of trade uh, advances uh, under the rubric of the World Trade Organization and other deals? Yeah, probably. Uh, we probably it, have seen the end of it. Yeah, this is surely the, the biggest change in the U.S. trade policy in 40 years or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, it is very interesting how uh, trade has become the third rail of American politics. It used to be entitlements and Medicare and things like that that were untouchable uh, in, in, in elections. Now it's trade. You know, whoever favors trade uh, gets voted out of office, which is a, a terrible thing because uh, uh, part of the confusions, of the many confusions that we have seen in the campaign is the demonization of trade and uh, admiring technology. You know, mm-hmm. very proud of the technology that the United States uh, uh, creates and that puts it at the top of the league in the world. But that technology is the one that is causing a lot of the unemployment and dislocations and uh, uh, a lot of the ills that are blamed on trade, uh, in fact, have to do with technology, and Trump never recognizes that, never says that. And uh, so, yes, it has become uh, radioactive to talk about promoting trade and creating new uh, trade agreements. And, David, what, is, what would that mean for Americans if the United States were, as Moisés says, to retreat from 40 years of commitment to free trade? Well, I think it, there are two big things to think about here. First is, would this have happened even without Donald Trump's uh, election. Because remember, Hillary Clinton was... was, When we came down to three candidates when Bernie Sanders was still in this, you had not a single one in favor of TPP. So the fact that TPP has died this week uh, is not a huge shock. Um, The the question about Secretary Clinton was whether she really meant it or not. But I think there is a reasonable argument to be made that the era of these big trade agreements that take upwards of a decade to negotiate, by the time you're done with them, you're imposing them on an economy that bears no resemblance to the economy as it stood when you began to negotiate them, you know, that that probably is not an all bad thing. But Moises raised a really other interesting question, which is when you listen to Donald Trump talk about the American economy, it sometimes sounds like the American economy that resonates with him is the one in the 1950s when we got a lot of steel workers. We don't have enough working steel workers right now in the U.S. to really be a, any significant contributor the American economy. He doesn't talk about services. He doesn't talk about software development. Even in immigration, you know, it would be hard to get him at times to acknowledge the fact that some of the most successful American companies we have seen, Intel, Google, were co-founded by immigrants. Mm -hmm. And these are the drivers of the American economy. So uh, I think that's going to be the hard part and to get his arms around the technology element. We don't have any trade deals with China, and yet 
the the trade deficit with China is what you hear about from him the most. He wants Apple to bring back the manufacture of iPhones to the United States. That's right. I don't think that's, that's, that's from what I from, from what I hear from from Tim Cook, the uh, head of Apple. I don't think that's going to happen. Missy Ryan. The fundamental question is: Can Donald Trump bring the jobs back? Um, this is being driven by loss of, you know, uh, hiring blue collar jobs and loss of livelihood. And I just personally don't see, even if you do impose new tariffs, even if you do withdraw and renegotiate NAFTA, it's hard to see how those jobs could come back in the scale that they would have to in order to satisfy that that desire from the populace. Missy Ryan is Pentagon reporter at The Washington Post. I'm Tom Jelton. You're listening to The Diane Reem Show. It's very interesting to see how this conversation about job losses takes place uh, at a time in which the American economy is creating more jobs than uh, any other advanced economy. Uh, Their unemployment uh, rate is below 5%. Uh, Median incomes are growing up. Uh, Still not recovered uh, fully to what they were, but, uh, you know, the the, the economic situation is not as catastrophic as, as Trump describes it. In fact, it is quite the contrary. So that's that's point one. Point two is that, yes, uh, uh, trade and trade agreements may become, uh, might, might have become toxic, politically impossible and unviable in the United States and in other countries, but not elsewhere. Uh, if TPP go, I, I agree that TPP is not going to be uh, approved and it's dead on uh, for now, uh, but other countries are moving forward. So uh, mm-hmm. the, China is promoting a free trade agreement in the neighborhood, in the Pacific. So so, you know, it may be that it's only in the United States and countries like the United States, you know, that, that where, where trade and trade agreements have become so toxic. Elsewhere, people, uh, countries are pursuing their own trade agreements. So, Moises, you have a lot of experience in trade, you know, uh, from your prior life in Venezuela. What will be the practical implications of a real retreat from trade in terms of the American consumer, the technology that they have access to, and the the price of items that they've gotten accustomed to? There is a lot of evidence that trade uh, has generated uh, that the United States is one of the countries that have benefited the most uh, of uh, from, from from trade openings and the like. Of course, it, there are dislocations that we have seen and that have been widely discussed. Uh, but uh, there are also studies uh, that show that if uh, Tr- Donald Trump goes ahead with all of its uh, trade-related promises, something like five million uh, workers in the United States may be affected. Negatively. Let's go now to Kyle, who's on the line from Chicago, Illinois. Hello, Kyle. You've reached the Diane Reem Show. Hi. Thank you so much for taking my call. Uh, I just wanted to say that it's uh, Happy Veterans Day and uh, actually a Happy Armistice Day. You know, the eleventh day, the eleventh month of the eleventh hour, the eleventh day, and so on and so forth. Uh, I was just kind of. And you're a veteran my... yourself, aren't you, Kyle? I am. I did ten years in the military, and I'm now a disabled veteran. Well, thank you for that. Well, thank you so much. Um, I was just curious as a veteran that has had to serve abroad. I served over in Germany. I served in South Korea. Um, How much longer is America actually going to be a player on the world stage? I mean, we went over in World War II and we took over Germany. And now if you look at Germany's economy and you look at Germany as a whole, they're flourishing. And then if you look at South Korea, where my grandfather was at in the war and where I subsequently served, they're flourishing. How 
isn't it ironic that, you know, we go over and we take care of these people and kick out the bad, so to say, and now they're flourishing and we're struggling? Well, as Moises Naim pointed out, it's not necessarily so clear that we're struggling uh, economically in comparison to these other countries. But, David Sanger, it's certainly true that we are taking a far less a seat in front uh, than we used to with respect to Europe and Asia and so forth. Or would under a Trump we, president. Or would, would. would. And that's the big question. So um, it, you've raised a fascinating uh, question, and uh, I think the country is grateful for the time you spend in, in both places. And I think the the question that really comes out of um, uh, the Trump election here is, are those troops abroad in our interests, or are they merely in the interests of the nations in which we are keeping them? That's how the, he poses the question, isn't it? Yeah, and the and the the um, argument that they are in America's interests are that China, North Korea, are likely far less likely to be adventurist uh, and ultimately move against American interests if they're going to collide up early with American forces who are based in Japan and South Korea. And that Russia is going to be significantly more contained with a presence in Europe, which the Obama administration has been bolstering with these rotating forces going through uh, the new NATO uh, countries of Estonia and Latvia and Lithuania uh, and also in Poland. Uh, And so if you pull back from that, do you ultimately get to a position where you've got a shrunken sense of American power? David Singer is national security correspondent at the New York Times. Uh, We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to go back to the lines. A lot of people have questions about what this election means for America's role in the world going forward. There's a couple of other issues we definitely need to touch on, such as the future of what this government is going to do with regard to climate change. And we've got a couple other parts of the world we have to talk about, developments in Venezuela and China, for example. I'm Tom Jelton. This is The Diane Reem Show. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Tom Jelton from NPR. This is the Diane Reem Show. My guest for this discussion of international news are David Sanger from the New York Times, Missy Ryan from the Washington Post, and Moises Naim, who writes for El País, uh, the newspaper in Madrid. And Moises, uh, bring us up to date the horrifying situation in Venezuela, a once wealthy country, your native land, uh, has descended into crime and poverty, uh, and a great deal of popular unrest uh, there uh, with the government of Nicolas Maduro. And finally, uh, there do seem to be some prospect of negotiations, talks between the Maduro government and the opposition. Fill us in on where those stand, and do they have any prospect of bridging this gulf? Those negotiations were brokered by the Vatican uh, with the support of three former presidents, from uh, one from Spain, from Panama, and from the Dominican Republic. They met uh, several weeks ago, and they decided to create working groups that were going to report back uh, today. And so today, this afternoon in Caracas, there's going to be a meeting of the opposition with the government uh, to talk about the 
the results of the, of the possibilities of these working groups. Uh, many see these as just delaying tactics. The context for, for these talks is, as you said, is a horrible uh, humanitarian tragedy, which is a country that has uh, some of the worst indicators in the world, in, in, from murder rates to inflation to unemployment to infant mortality. But the other is that the Constitution uh, allows for a recall referendum at, at midpoint. Uh, so if 20% of the voters uh, vote in favor, um, th there should be an election, provided it happens before the midpoint of the term, which is January 10. Uh, so if before January 10 there is an elect, there is a, a referendum, and the, and, and the voters, as all uh, surveys point, uh, call for an election, there should be a general election. If it happens after January 10, which is the midpoint, uh, then the vice president of the country uh, takes over and finishes the term if they lose their referendum. So many uh, are uh, seeing these negotiations as a delaying tactic on the part of the government just to uh, kick the can and, and, and move things uh, just to get after the January 10 date. Well, is the timing of that referendum under negotiation as a result of these talks? Well, the opposition part of the opposition said, let's stop all of this, just let's call a general election and, and stop all, 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 all the other things. And that's not going to happen. This is a government that is not going to just leave power uh, because uh, opposition leaders call for an election. Is there any, are there any other players in Venezuela that could uh, influence the Maduro government's uh, stance in this? I, I mean, the military, of course, has been uh, powerful in Venezuela in the past, and we have seen defections from some of the senior military leadership from the Maduro government. Well, but not in the sense of creating a counterbalance to the yeah. to a to a military that is completely allied and aligned uh, with the government and supports the government. Uh, the three foreign players that are most important in Venezuela today are very surprising. They are China, Russia, and Cuba. And Cuba, mm -hmm. Cuba uh, wields immense influence there in, in in Venezuela. They control a lot of the security apparatus. Uh, the Chinese, uh, through their uh, financial aid to Venezuela, and they are the premier uh, financial supporters of the regime, are very important. And the Russians, the Russians have a very close relationship. And it was odd that, and it's an interesting, surprising take, that one of the leaders of the uh, government party said that now that Trump is in power in the United States and he's so close with the Russians, and Venezuela and Russia are so close, then perhaps through the Russians, the Venezuelan Chavez government, uh, uh, Maduro government, can get uh, uh, better treatment on the part from, uh, from the United States. Missy, uh, we have a, a question from David about another country in our hemisphere, and that's Canada. And you mentioned earlier... Uh, how the uh, Canadian immigration uh, website was crashed during the during the election. Uh, David wonders, as a Canadian living and working in the United States, I want to know how the U.S.-Canada relationship will change. If NAFTA is canceled or drastically changed, my life in the U.S. will be over. Apparently, he is here under some kind of work arrangement that is authorized by NAFTA. Do we know the answer to that? We don't. I mean, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but I think it's too soon to say. Obviously, Trump is part of his uh, first 100 days plan, has promised to either renegotiate or withdraw from NAFTA. And as uh, the caller suggests, that would have a huge impact on the Canadian economy, perhaps not as punishing as it would be for Mexico, but significant. And, you know, I mean, I think that when you look at the sort of... Uh, 
the orientations of the Trump administration and the Trudeau government and, you know, what Canada has stood for in terms of progressive Im- immigration um, and its sort of uh, stance on the world stage, I think you could potentially see a drifting apart of these two important allies. Um, but again, we're just going to have to wait and see. And David Sanger, uh, we need to talk about China, not only China's reaction to the election of Donald Trump, but some of the actions that China has taken this week, uh, particularly in Hong Kong, where there's been this long-running battle about how much autonomy or independence or freedom the people of Hong Kong are going to have vis-a-vis China. What happened there this week on that front? Well, over the past nearly 15 years now, I guess, since China reverted back uh, longer than that uh, to uh, Hong Kong reverted back to Chinese control from British control. The Chinese have gradually tightened down on their commitment to allow the two systems of the one country, two systems Mm -hmm. concept. Um, But you could publish criticism of the Chinese leadership still in some Hong Kong papers and so forth. We saw some editors and writers disappear for a while, and it turned out they were taken off to China and come back. But what happened this week was that two uh, just elected legislators who um, basically shouted epithets about the Chinese as they were being sworn into the Hong Kong legislature were barred from being seated. And this is the first time we've ever seen the Chinese basically interfere with that with the electoral system in the one country, two systems element. And that tells you that the complete absorption of Hong Kong into the Hong Kong, into the Chinese system is really beginning now. And what implications does that have for Taiwan, which is another government whose sovereignty and independent status uh, China does not recognize? Well, you know, when Hong Kong first... um, Uh, or when Britain first struck the deal to return Hong Kong, the idea was that Taiwan would look at how this worked out. And if it worked out, it could be a model for, if not a full reunification, which the Chinese have always talked to, at least some kind of a, um, a working relationship. And everything we have seen happen in Hong Kong since would give the Taiwanese significant pause about turning what has been a very strong economic relationship into a strong political one. Mercedes, you mentioned China's role in Venezuela and, of course, growing all across the uh, across Latin America. Uh, China's influence uh, and at the United Nations, of course, is very powerful and really an extraordinary development this week with the election of a new president of Interpol, the global police agency. A Chinese security official is now going to be running Interpol. What's the significance of that, do you think? It's Meng uh, Hongwei. Uh, he's the, the former vice minister for public uh, security. It's very in- important to note that Interpol is not a police force. It's a multilateral organization uh, that uh, coordinates ex- and exchanges information between police forces. Um, and also it's important to note that uh, he's the president. He was named the president of the organization. That uh, it's, it's largely symbolic, but not insignificant. Uh, the, the real power uh, of the organization is held by the secretary general, um, which at this point is uh, uh, held by a citizen of, of, of Sweden. The concern there is that uh, sometimes uh, political persecution uh, is, uh, you know, countries persecute their 
political opponents that they right. flee away, and then Interpol is asked to pursue them, and that is a highly sensitive issue. And we'll see what happens there. Uh, one other part of the world we haven't mentioned, well, there are several parts of the world we haven't mentioned, but Missy, I wanted to ask you about the situation in Afghanistan and what you anticipate happening there. Uh, Donald Trump hasn't spoken a lot uh, about the uh, U.S. deployment to Afghanistan, but we had some news from Afghanistan this morning, some disturbing news, a reminder that conflict that the conflict there continues. Sure. There was a, a suicide bombing at uh, the German consulate in the city of Mazar-e-Sharif, and there were four civilians killed. And really, this is just the latest um, brazen Taliban attack that we've seen in Afghanistan. And it's, a, I think, a, a reminder of how precarious the security situation there is and how much it's deteriorated, deteriorated. It was very striking to see how absent Afghanistan was from the presidential campaign, from the debates. But we still have 10,000 troops there, mm-hmm. and the country is not heading in a good direction. Let's go now to Doug, who's on the line from Illinois. Doug, you've called the Diane Meme Show. You're on the air. Oh, thank you, Tom, and, and good morning to you and the panel. Thank you for accepting my call. I uh, would like to ask the panel, and in particular Mr. Sanger, um, your your interviews in depth, uh, I think March, April, with Donald Trump, you and Maggie Hagerman, uh, he actually uh, praised you for your accuracy in terms of reporting uh, uh, what he, uh, his foreign policy views were. Uh, and I'd be grateful, Mr. Sanger, if, if – if you could share some reflections on from those interviews uh, and in your course your long experience in in, in, in journalism and, and in the world, uh, uh, your your sense of Donald Trump uh, as you talked with him, as you and Maggie talked with him, uh, your sense of what his uh, uh, foreign policy might be as uh, as our next president. And uh, thank you very much. And I think that he's wondering whether he said something in private that he has not said in public. Or No, I mean, we published, uh, Maggie and I published the uh, the transcripts of those those interviews. Mm-hmm. So you can right. go into the Times uh, and, and see um, uh, exactly what he said. I had the sense of somebody who has been deeply interested in the world for a long time, but has seen the world in a very transactional sense. In other words, alliances are less interesting to him than the one-on-one transactions, which would be expected if you have been interacting with the world as a real estate developer mm-hmm. and you're you know, building a building someplace and you've got a one-off deal. So uh, I think that where he it became clear from the interviews that he needs to focus his most attention is trying to come up with a hierarchy of national interests that he wants to defend, what's important to him and what isn't, uh, and then having a set of policies that can, that he can uh, act on from that, but also trying to figure out how he's going to build partnerships because the world he has been in has been one where you had maybe one or two local partners, but you didn't have to go organize 20 fractious countries. David Sanger from the New York Times. I'm Tom Jelton. You're listening to The Diane Reem Show. And let's go now to Peter, who's on the line from Michigan. Hello, Peter. You've called The Diane Reem Show. Yes. Uh, the hacking of the U.S. election by a hostile foreign power is a monstrous catastrophe. That I see the media, and including this conversation, just furiously trying to normalize and move off of uh, perhaps because they recognized that they were enthusiastic 
collaborators and vectors in this process. And it's even more disturbing that this MO of hacking, distorting, and weaponizing emails is exactly the same as that deployed against climate scientists in 2009 following a hack at the University of East Anglia in the UK. We don't know who did that hack, but I know from because I'm a videographer and I talk to climate scientists and have for 10 years that Russia was a leading suspect in that hack because of their huge interest in fossil fuels. Okay. And I just find this these twin developments uh, of the, the hacking of the U.S. election and the complete chaos that our climate uh, policy is now in is absolutely uh, catastrophic developments and almost completely ignored in the press. I'd like to hear an explanation. Okay. Thanks very much, Peter. And you're right. There are two developments there. Some would separate them. You have linked them. Uh, Missy, uh, do you have, uh, first of all, climate change? I mean, this is a huge issue. Let's deal with uh, that uh, sure. question first. Uh, Donald Trump has raised a lot of questions about the accuracy of predictions on climate change and certainly suggested he's going to retreat from some of the commitments that the United States made in the past. Sure. A lot of people have been asking whether Donald Trump will be in the uh, the country's first anti-science president we don't know yet, but he certainly has questioned climate change, and it's a real possibility that he will either pull out of the Paris Agreement or um, make it moot by not respecting it or doing uh, things that would lead other countries not to do their part. The United States is supposed to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 2025 significantly, um, but he's talking about increasing the fossil fuel industry. And uh, David, uh Peter made the point that he thinks that Russia is sort of a saboteur of the climate change change agenda and even sort of with its hacking uh, may have uh, done something. Yeah, could have been. Uh, the, the bigger question that I think he raised at the beginning is what was Russia's role in the hacking yeah. of, you know, in, in this election? Yeah. Because they're two somewhat separate things. If you're hacking for the purpose of propaganda for a political purpose. We've seen that before. That's not saying that we approve of it, but we've seen the Russians and others do that uh, in a propaganda campaign. Certainly, you've seen it in Ukraine. You've seen it in Estonia and elsewhere. What we haven't seen before until this election cycle was a foreign power coming in, breaking into a a political party, and then using that data to try to move an actual election or just sow chaos in that election. And um, there wasn't any sign of, of hacking that we found yet in the actual election day. But they, we've got to think hard before the next election cycle about what the implications were of the fact that we, for the first time in our history, really saw foreign power get involved in this system. First time in our history, we've seen a lot of things uh, this week. And as we have been discussing uh, today, lots of questions about this pivotal development in U.S. domestic politics that will have ramifications around the world. I want to thank my guests for this hour, David Singer, whom you just heard from, national security correspondent at The New York Times, Missy Ryan, Pentagon reporter at The Washington Post, and Moises Naim, a distinguished fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a columnist for the newspaper El Pais. I want to also thank uh, all the people who called. We did have one call from Kyle, who is an Army veteran, and he reminds us that today is Veterans Day, and I think all of us honor and uh, appreciate all the Americans who have served our nation and continue 
to do so in very difficult places. So thank you for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Jelton. This is The Diane Rehm Show. The Diane Rehm Show is produced by Sandra Baker, Denise Couture, Rebecca Kaufman, Lisa Dunn, Alexandra Boti, Danielle Knight, Erica R. Hendry, and Allison Brody. The engineer is Alex Drewenskis. <laughs>